Welcome to another episode of Better Place, Talking International Law with me, Jonathan Kolieb, Senior Lecturer in International Law at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Today, I am absolutely chuffed to have with me uh, an old mentor, an old friend, an old boss, uh, Sarah Lee Whitson, um, a force of nature for uh, anyone um, who knows her will testify to that too. A force of nature in human rights, the, the universe of human rights, and in particular human rights advocacy. Uh, a former Wall Street banker, former New York lawyer, turned into one of the leaders of Human Rights Watch for over a decade. Sarah Lee, welcome. Thank you, and great to see you, Jonathan, and great to see you still in the international law field, in the human rights field. It's really wonderful. They never let us go. Um, and where are you joining us from today, Sarah Lee? Are you in New York? I, I'm in, actually in New Jersey, uh, in the countryside, lakefront. Yeah, oh, idyllic. And you're surviving lockdown? Uh, or COVID, I should say, in general? There's you know, no I mean, uh, it's been actually a personally a nice respite from having to travel all the time and commute and get dressed in the morning. So it's, uh, it's actually been personally uh, nice to have that extra time uh, with my family and, and in my own home. Yeah, awesome. And, um, and so many people, high, these high achieving uh, people that I'm so jealous of um, seem to have uh, taken on hobbies, COVID hobbies and learnt new languages and, and whatnot this year. H have you done anything um, similar? What, what, what's distracting you um, under COVID? Um, I mean, the only thing I get to do more of that I already love doing is cooking and baking. Um, so I've had a chance to try out some recipes that require you to be there in person. Um, so that's, that's really been the, the best, uh, best time to do that. Awesome. Um, Sarah Lee, uh, with your permission, I want to share with the, um, the viewers and listeners a little bit more of a formal bio introduction to you to get, for them to have a taste of, um, who you are and what you've done and, and then we'll get stuck in if that's all right. Sure. Um, Sarah Lee Whitson is an American human rights lawyer and advocate. She has worked and volunteered for various civil society organizations, including the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, the Center for Economic and Social Rights, and for Human Rights Watch for over a decade. Earlier in 2020, she left her position as Executive Director of the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, um, and has now taken up a leadership role at a new organization called Dawn, uh, an organization advocating for democracy and human rights in the Arab world. Prior to her human rights work, Sarah Lee worked for Goldman Sachs as an investment banker and as a lawyer for a prominent New York law firm. Sarah Lee is a graduate of Cal, UC Berkeley and Harvard Law, where I believe one of your classmates was a young Barack Obama. Now, uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to leave the formal bio at that. Did I miss anything? Did I do? I, do you need to correct anything? Uh, no, that sounds like a good bio. Okay, so I mean, we'll unpack that CV. So much to ask about. Um, the obligatory um, follow-up question after such a, a decades-long stellar career in human rights is: Is what's your favourite ice cream flavour? Ooh, peanut butter chocolate. No, really? What does that even mean? Mm -hmm. Peanut what? butter chocolate is the best flavor of ice cream. It's that salty, sweet combination. Oh, I've never even heard of that. So chocolate ice cream with bits of peanut butter. It's oh. so good. Try okay. it at home. I, I shall. Uh, thank you for that. Um, now you've done a lot, and I guess your, your, I think it's a 16-year tenure at, at Human Rights Watch really does stand out from a, uh, an international law and a human rights perspective. So, you know, we'll definitely get to that. But I'm curious, what career accomplishments are, are you most proud of? 
Um, well, certainly um, the career accomplishment that I'm most uh, proud of is my work at Human Rights Watch. Um, uh, it was the, you know, the, the, the main job I had where my values were so closely aligned with my work. Um, when I was working at Goldman Sachs, when I was working at Cleary Gottlieb, I really didn't care at all uh, about the work that I was doing. I actually had not much interest at all uh, in the projects that I was working on, uh, the, the deals that I was working on. Um, and I can certainly do them competently and perhaps even take a technical interest in, in some of the matters. Um, there'd be a feeling of accomplishment because you could actually finish projects. Um, but I had no personal interest uh, in them. And um, to be in a job where I was working in, in issues that I was personally passionate about and cared about and, and feeling that I was standing for what I believed in, um, working to help others, to give voice to others, to their experiences, um, was just a, a, a great feeling and mm. um, one where I never had to question what I was doing when I woke up in the morning. Mm. Um, I did, so so you, you, you must have been living a, a very comfortable life, shall we say, um, presumably a, a really nice salary, a nice gig, job security, uh, no death threats uh, when working at, um, as an investment banker or a New York lawyer. Um, so so, so what, what prompted the change? How do you jump from, from that comfortable existence uh, on the up and up in, in Manhattan life and lifestyle to becoming a, a human rights advocate? Yeah. At, was it then, I think Human Rights Watch was a pretty young organization when you joined. It was certainly much younger. I was much younger and uh, had, I think, about 100 or 150 people on staff versus the around 500 there are today. So it was certainly a much smaller organization. Um, I would say that I, you know, I, I really had George Bush to thank for it. I've, I've often credited him for my career change um, because, uh, I, I mean, it became impossible for me. Uh, with the war in Iraq, with the start of the war in Iraq, uh, to continue my day job in investment banking um, with everything that was going around me. And I was particularly infuriated that my colleagues at Goldman Sachs, um, you know, barely even had an opinion about it. Uh, or if they did, it was just a side thought or casual thought. And I couldn't do that. I, I felt like this was the most important thing that was happening in my country. Uh, with my name attached to it as a U.S. taxpayer, as a U.S. voter, and I couldn't just sit by and watch what was happening. So, uh, I mean, George Bush forced me uh, to, uh, uh, to leave my job uh, in, in the banking world and to, to take on a more direct role in working on the issues that I thought mattered deeply to me personally, but mattered deeply to my country. I mean, if you're not going to speak out and become actively engaged when your country is going to war on false pretenses, um, literally killing people in another country on false pretenses, then um, you know, what is it going to take uh, to personally motivate you to become involved? And that's not to say everybody should be a human rights activist, um, but it is to say that I was particularly disappointed in colleagues uh, who, you know, just checked out. It was just like reading the news for them. It didn't affect them, and so it didn't matter. And, and I realized I could not fit in that environment anymore. But, so, um, so, Sarah, so that was really it. Sarah Lee, though, can I push you, though, on that? Because even well-meaning people, I, I, I'm saw the, the invasion of Iraq and, and they protested um, or they wrote letters. They didn't quit their jobs and, and go join a, a, a human rights organization. So, so I guess, was there, was, there, was there an epiphany moment for you? I mean, did you wake up one day and just sort of said, enough? Um, yeah, I have well, to do this or...? There, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's sort of the, the, the intersection of where you are personally and professionally and the opportunities that arise and the circumstances that present themselves. So in a sense, it was that perfect storm with a war in Iraq. And Iraq is a country I had been working in from my law school days during the first Gulf War. So I was, you know, something that was personally very invested in and outraged by. Um, and while I had managed to remain active in the human rights field with human rights organizations on a pro bono basis at my law firm, 
that wasn't really feasible when I was in the investment banking world. Uh, and in fact, when I went back to Iraq on my vacation time, on my personal time with a human rights organization in what at the time was a last ditch effort to stop the war, to prevent the war by getting uh, Jimmy Carter uh, and Nelson Mandela uh, to come and negotiate a, a diplomatic solution to the showdown between the US uh, and Iraq at the time when I came back, um, that elicited criticism and you know hand wringing uh, uh, among my superiors at, at at Goldman who were very nervous that this would become known somehow. Yeah. Um, and and you know for me I I I, uh, I I just you know that was just more important to me. Yeah. And the job at Human Rights Watch opened up, and my friends and my family said, you know, what are you waiting for? At least try uh, yeah. to to see what happens and apply to the job. Yeah, and yeah. I did. Um, so it was literally and, you know, just a job ad out there and, and you just sent in your CV and cover Well, I had, friends, I had some friends at Human Rights Watch who, you know, emailed me or contacted me. I don't know what we did in that day to say, in fact, it was Reed Brody, uh, who is the dictator hunter and, and should be a great person to be talking to in terms of being an amazing international lawyer, um, who alerted me to the position and said, you should apply. Um, and my husband encouraged me and, and, and so on. And, you know, I, I, I can't say I was really, uh, I mean, it was certainly hard to give up my salary and, and you know, the accompanying perks and security at a place like uh, Goldman Sachs. Um, yeah. But that was never really my motivation. I, I you know, in, in being in that job, you know, I, I certainly wanted to pay off my law school debts and get some financial security, but I was never you know, aiming to be a master of the universe, or my goal was never to accumulate as much wealth as possible. Um, mm. Although my shoe budget did take a hit, you know, and that was pretty <laughs> sad. But I have survived. And 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 uh, and we'll get to Human Rights Watch um, in 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 a moment. But but let let's can we turn the clock back a little bit more because you've already alluded to the fact that you were interested in human rights. Um, even in, in law school days. I know a, a little bit about you, um, Sarah Lee. Um, I think we're, I remember sitting um, on the balcony of the Ambassador Hotel in Jerusalem uh, with you and, um, and you, you just sort of dropped in a you know, casual manner that, that your mum, I think, was it, that was born down the street, essentially in the old city of Jerusalem in the Armenian quarter. Um, yes. Well, close. Yes. Um, and and then she she immigrated to um, the U.S. in the was it fifties or sixties? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I'm just curious: did that personal history of of um, you know did your family influence your interest in human rights? Yeah. Uh, I mean, my family and my mother in particular, 1000% uh, influenced um, the work I do uh, as a human rights lawyer, as a human rights advocate, um, but, but mostly in terms of the work I do of having empathy and compassion for people in difficult circumstances and having just a knee-jerk reaction, a, a gut reaction against injustice and unfairness. Mm. Um, uh, my, uh, my grandparents um, survived the Armenian genocide. My grandfather is an orphan, and to make a long story short, um, ended up as, as refugees in Jerusalem. Um, my grandmother was a child bride, married off as refugee children often are, basically to protect her from the, 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 the dangers of being a foreigner refugee in a strange place. Mm. Um, but when she went to have my mother deliver, physically deliver my mother, she actually went back to the refugee camp in Lebanon, in Zahle in Lebanon, where she gave birth to my mom and then came back to Jerusalem. So technically my uh -huh. mom was born in the refugee camp in uh, uh, Zahle in Lebanon, um, but for all intents and purposes grew up in Jerusalem along with her siblings uh, until the war in 1948 when um, they, even though they were Armenians and, and Christians and living in the Christian Armenian quarter, uh, fled uh, because of the war and, and because they were, you know, told to leave. Um, and they did and they went to Jordan. Um, uh, and, you know, 
then my mother came to the United States to work so that her brother could study uh, in Los Angeles. And that was sort of the model then. That was the only reason why my mother would have justification to come to the United States. It yeah. was to support her brother so he could study and get ahead. Um, but, you know, the, the, the notion, the experience of being a refugee, the notion of being a survivor of genocide, mm. um, uh, the, the, the notion of having to cross uh, thousands of miles for safety and security mm. um, was, you know, very deeply ingrained in me. I, I went mm. to an Armenian school in Los Angeles for, for 12 years. My father died when I was two, so my mom raised me as a single parent um, in very difficult financial situations. Um, and you know, it, it it's I I I knew you know uh, I don't know what the expression is, but I, I knew how the other shoe fit, yes. uh, and I had a very personal experience um, with the difficulties that that refugee communities, immigrant communities, uh, uh, face uh, mm. uh, people in poverty face. Um, and that was very deeply ingrained with me. But I think part of the Armenian experience as well, and this is my good fortune of having gone to an Armenian school uh, for 12 years, um, is instilling the notion that we as a people had a cause. We needed to struggle for recognition of the Armenian genocide, that there was a great injustice done. And the solution for that injustice is justice. Mm. Uh, and that was just my bread and butter growing up. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, this is what we learned. Um, right. when there's an injustice, you struggle for justice. Right. So, yeah. And did that, did that, um, you know, um, internalized struggle for justice, which was very personal, obviously. Um, and thank you for sharing that. Did that translate into, I need to go to law school? I mean, was it that linear, that, that justice equals so. law? Uh, I think so. I mean, I, I, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. I, I don't even think I knew anybody who had gone to college growing up. Um, you know, maybe my, my teachers in school, I suppose, but no one, no one in my family, uh, uh, um, you know, a much more working class community of immigrants struggling for their children. Um, but I knew that law was, was you know, the, the, the way to become a lawyer, um, yeah. the way to go to court, the way to fight for justice, but also the way to get into politics. Um, it was very clear to me that, that, that politicians came from the field of law, that what politicians, particularly in the United States, did was write laws and pass laws and push laws. So I, I knew enough that that was the direction I wanted to go in. Mm -hmm. um, and you uh, uh, mentioned that uh, even whilst you're at Goldman Sachs and Cleary now, flashing forward, I guess. Um, you did some volunteering, I think, on the side or some pro bono work. I believe some of that was with the Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee and also a, a feminist um, rights organization called uh, Madre? Madre. Madre, excuse me. Yes, um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about those organizations and those experiences. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I mean, I must admit those were relatively small contributions that I made to both those fantastic organizations. Um, I did a lot more volunteer work with the Center for Economic and Social Rights. Um, okay. And I was the general counsel pro bono for, I don't know, over 10 years, maybe 15 years. So that was my the primary vehicle of my pro bono engagement was through uh, the center. Um, but I did uh, manage to do one uh, volunteer mission with Madre uh, to travel to uh, Lebanon uh, in the aftermath of uh, uh, conflict um, uh, with Lebanon and, and uh, I'm sorry, with Israel. Um, and because they knew I spoke Arabic and because I'd already been involved in a lot of human rights work in the Middle East um, during law school in Iraq, uh, you know, People knew people who knew people who wanted right. me, therefore, to participate in, in, in the work there. Yeah. And uh, with the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, um, this, um, you know, was, uh, you know, I would have to say just at a time when there was a lot of discrimination uh, against Arab Americans, when Islamophobia was still a growing phenomenon. And um, you know, people I knew wanted to start a New York chapter of the uh, ADC, and that's how I became involved. And I and it was funny because I was involved uh, as you know the the, the co-president of the New York chapter along with a, 
Professor Asla Bali, who's Turkish um, and actually a law, international law professor at UCLA, and we used to always joke with our Arab friends saying, you know, you've got an Armenian and a Turk heading the Arab American Anti-Discrimination <laughs> Committee chapter, guys, come on, you know. Really it's in the name though, we don't discriminate. <laughs> that is um, cute. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, uh, it was really the centers, Center for Economic and yeah. Social Rights and the work uh, I did there that was and the most significant human rights work uh, so, that, I, so that I pursued. How did you, how did, so you were at Cleary, you had some pro bono time, this brand new center for economic, so economic and, and social rights said, we need law help. And, and you use your pro bono time to essentially be their in-house general counsel. Um, you know, I mean, and, and I think this might be uh, illustrative for students watching yeah. this, you know, that's not how it works. Uh, how it worked that I became involved with the center was because um, various of my Harvard Law School classmates and I, during the first Gulf War, while we were still students in law school, decided that we needed to go to Iraq uh, and expose the impact of the war on Iraqi civilians. Um, and, you know, we just did it. We made it happen. We took some school students from the School of Public Health. We raised a little bit of money. We negotiated our way into Iraq. Uh, and we did this study about the impact of the war on civilians, which became a huge uh, a news story um, because the extent to which we found that the uh, uh, war in Iraq, the first Gulf War in Iraq, had such a devastating impact on civilians well before what anyone knew or understood or what was being reported. Um, so some of my uh, uh, friends from that venture while we were at law school went on to found CSR, and I was actively participating with them, you know, fighting with them over what the name should be and so forth. Oh, so um, speaking and, of the name, I've got a bone to pick with you on that. Um, yeah. What happened to cultural rights? Um, you know, the, no, the know, international yeah. treaties, oh, is economic, social and cultural rights. How did, how did uh, culture drop off? How did they let that happen? Um, I mean, I, I, I was certainly not an international law specialist. I never took an international law course at law school. I never took a human rights law course at law school. Uh -huh. Um, so it was much more basic and fundamental than that. And they should have known better because they had taken they should have. And written law review articles about that. Um, but so when they founded the organization, that was my channel to have a more formal role and remain engaged in the human rights world, even while I was at the law firm. Gotcha. And was there struggle? I mean, you, you need to seek permission, you know, internally at uh, law firms for pro bono gigs. They need to be approved. Was there any struggle in, in, in getting that? Um, no, because I think I just did it, you know, on my own time. I didn't seek to bill hours to that right. as okay. part of my uh, uh, law firm time. I mean, there's, there's pro bono time where you kind of bill the hours so you reflect it as your work, mm. um, where I never did that. I don't think I ever did that anyway. And I just wanted to note for those listening that the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, Madre, and the Center for Economic and Social Rights are all still in existence. Um, yes. And uh, still, um, still doing um, what they do. Uh, in fact, one of the things uh, I wanted to pick up on two things. One, uh, uh, the Center for Economic and Social Security, I think one of their um, founders says, was quoted as saying, what we do is social, social justice through human rights. As, as being their mantra. And it just occurs to me that, Sarah Lee, I mean, that, that sounds like your personal mantra. Are you, would you be happy with that? Or? Um, I think so. You know, I have never been a technician of law or, or someone who attributes any holy or sacred meaning to any original text or, or yeah. words of law. Um, I think the law, particularly human rights law, is, is designed to serve a purpose and the purpose of social justice. And so that's, if that's the vehicle we have, then that's the vehicle we'll use. Um, there are, of course, many other vehicles for social justice. There's uh, uh, labor organizing, there's union uh, uh, driving, there's petitioning, there's, there's, there's civil society organizing. Um, there's humanitarian work. There are varieties. Uh, you've and, chose and human rights law human is one rights. of them. Right. Um, thank you for that. Um, and then the other thing that I just wanted to pick up on, on something that you said was, um, was it, it comes to a question about funding. 
you know, as so many university students and even just out of university, you know, they have great ideas in human rights or international law, but they've got no money. And I think you mentioned that you, 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 you know, you pulled together a budget for a mission to Iraq, I think you just flippantly said. So I'm just curious, sort of, A, how the hell did you do that? Where's the, where's the guidebook on how to raise funds for a human rights mission? Um, and, and two, just more generally, do you have any sort of reflections on fundraising for human rights work? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the genius of the fundraising um, for the work we did in Iraq while we were at Harvard Law School belongs to a very dear friend of mine called Roger Normand. Uh, and he had some connections and he knew some people and he knew some people who had connections with the MacArthur Foundation and he knew some progressive uh, people with a small family foundation. Um, and he was able to put together a credible proposal and raise, you know, what was it, you know, just a tiny budget. It was really just our yeah. travel expenses. I mean, we slept on the floors of hospitals uh, uh, when we were in, uh, in Iraq. It's not like we were staying in hotels. Um, um, my role was to be the connector with the Iraqis. My role was to pave the way because I had connections in Jordan and I had connections in Jordan who had connection to the Iraqis. So I could, you know, work to persuade them to allow a bunch of students from Harvard to come into their country and poke around. And, you know, the only thing we did was call ourselves the Harvard study team that added (laughs) apparently a lot of cachet. And I always say that's the best use I ever made of that degree. And that name (laughs) is to use the name we paid for and attach it to ourselves. And I'm surprised Harvard university didn't sue us (laughs) for calling ourselves the Harvard study team, but it was, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was an effective, uh, effective thing to do. But nowadays it's even easier. I mean, you could do GoFundMe's. There are so many, uh, small foundations, small organizations mm. that that will support um, uh, support you, and you know you don't have to travel thousands of miles away to do human rights work. And what I tell students is, you can do human rights work in your in your in your own neighborhood, in your backyard. And you know um, there 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 are injustices as we're seeing now with the Black Lives Matter movement in policing in our own neighborhoods. Mm. So um, you know. I would say spend as much time doing it as you do studying it. Yeah. All right. Let's shift to Human Rights Watch. Um, mm-hmm. in t- I think it was 2003 or 2004 that you joined uh, Human Rights yes, Watch. 2004. As, uh, 2004. And, and I think you joined as the executive director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East North Africa division. You never, ever received a promotion in 16 years, Sarah Lee. <laughs> you, you left as the executive director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East North Africa division. I mean that no slight. I'm, I'm sorry, that was tongue in cheek. Um, no, 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 not at all. Um, you, you know, I couldn't think of a politically tougher, more complex, more sensitive job in international law than being the chief of a human right, American human rights advocacy organization's Middle East North Africa division. I mean, literally uh, regions of the world where we've witnessed wars, atrocities, human rights abuses, even, you know, the 21st century's first genocide, uh, which also occurred on, on, um, during your tenure at Human Rights Watch. I'm referring to Darfur. Um, wow. Um, yeah. You wanted to take it easy, did you? Yeah. Just dip no, your toes I mean, in? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think I just, I had no idea. I had no idea um, what I was in for. I had no idea what we were in for in the region. Mm. Um, Human Rights Watch was a much smaller organization uh, with a much smaller profile. My team, you know, I think we were five people or six people, you know, so it was... It wasn't what it is today. Uh, okay. It wasn't, you know, uh, as all-encompassing. Uh, and and you know, I think what really changed in terms of the stresses you describe is when we reached a certain size and a certain level of prominence, there was so much expectation that we comment and speak and document yeah. 
everything. Indeed. And if we one didn't... Of the, right. One of the criticisms you received was, was a criticism of omission that you couldn't, that, that you did cover one side's human rights violations, but you did cover another. Um, well, that, I mean, that, of course, which is a much more politically and, and you know, mendacious sort of accusation that is not sincere um, compared to the more legitimate ones where I remember some Yemeni activists came to my office and said, why are you not covering our country? Mm. That's not fair. You know, and, and I was like, oh, we don't have any money. We don't, you know, and I'm like, yeah. and they don't care that, you know, they're right. like, we're 25 million people. Right. You know, we've got serious problems. So please find a way to start working in our country. And we did, and it was a great mm. decision. One of the, I'm, I'm so glad we were able to dedicate our resources uh, to Yemen. But, mm. you know, that there was this notion if we didn't write about an activist, if we didn't write about a conflict, um, that that was denigrating them or, or somehow saying there wasn't a problem. Um, and that became a very, very big responsibility and a responsibility yeah. that I felt very deeply. Yeah. Um, so how did, so, so, I mean, you copped, you've copped criticism, you personally, Human Rights Watch from all sides. Um, so uh, do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, there must've been a level of frustration, for example, lack of budget, you, you know, in the early years as well. You just couldn't be everywhere, but even in recent years, you've yeah. still copped criticism. How do you deal with that? Is that a badge of honor for you? Do you wear that with pride or? You know, my, um, you know, I, uh, my experience, and I, I learned this from a colleague of mine, Nadim Houdi, who was my deputy director and now heads a wonderful organization called the Arab Reform Initiative. Uh, and he said, you know, all of the people accusing us of partisanship are themselves partisans. And their only agenda in criticizing us is their partisan agenda. There is never someone who is attacking us or criticizing us that doesn't themselves have a partisan agenda. So they're accusing us of bias, but in fact, they are so deeply biased, unapologetically biased, yeah. um, that, you know, and that was just true every single time in my experience. Mm. Um, and, you know, understanding that and realizing that, um, I just became very immune to it. Um, I'm not one of those people who say, well, if we're attacked by both sides, then we must be doing something right. Yeah. Um, because that suggests that the truth is in the middle, um, which is yeah. bullshit and it's not true. And, and um, you know, no, that's not true. Um, uh, but rather um, that, you know, at least it means they care and at least yeah. it means we matter. Uh, and at least these partisans, these deeply biased uh, uh, political actors uh, have decided that it's worth their interest to try to silence us. Right. So for me, that's only further motivation to push harder and, yeah. uh, and, and speak louder and, and, um, uh, and also just keep changing up our game. I mean, that was right. one of the things I kept drumming in the last several years that I was there, which is in many in ways governments are on to us they you know the surprise factor of being outed by a human rights watch report that's gone we're part of their sort of pr uh pr project you know this right. is one slice of something that they have to anticipate and respond to and, and so forth and um, so you have to and, and so i'm curious on that i mean you, it sounds like you have to be nimble and entrepreneurial in how you do your human rights advocacy has it changed um, from like simply issue, researching and writing a report to something different now? Um, I mean, I, I can't say it's gotten better. Um, I will not say that the, <laughs> the overall human rights situation in the Middle East or North Africa has gotten better um, thanks to my work or our work or our advocacy that just patently false. Um, the situation in the Middle East and North Africa has gotten darker yeah. and, 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 and more tragic and more catastrophic uh, in so many ways. And, and I'm at peace with that. And I, and I uh, am comfortable with the contribution that we're making, even though things are getting worse. Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly areas of work where I'm very confident that our work made and has made and continues to make a profound difference um, and those are the issues that are themselves subject to 
uh, reform and change because they're not ultimately political threats, existential right. threats. Such um, as? So for, such as uh, the issue of migrant workers um, and, and modern day slavery uh, in uh, the Gulf states, but also Lebanon and Jordan. Um, Human Rights Watch was really the first organization to make that a global issue, to highlight the uh, unbelievable abuse and exploitation of domestic workers, housemaids, um, but also construction workers. And I think also the first to analyze that this was not a case of bad actors, bad employers, but it was a natural outcome of systemic legalized exploitation uh, pursuant to a system set up by these governments that allowed employers to control all facets of life of their employees with virtually no regulation. And so that's the natural outcome. If, mm. there, are no, if there are no stoplights and no speeding tickets, then people are going to drive uh, as fast as they can. Uh, and similarly, if there are no regulations and the system is built to uh, unevenly distribute power completely mm. in the hands of employers, it's going to be exploited. Mm. Um, and then being able to push the governments to change that through yeah. a classic name and shame strategy um, was possible because changing these laws was not an existential threat to the existence of the Emirati right. government or, or, or the Bahrainis or the Saudis for that matter. Right. So that's a success. What, what were some of, if I may, sort of maybe top three frustrations, um, mm -hmm. uh, be it countries or issues that you've had to face? Um, I mean, certainly the greatest tragedy uh, was the war and continues to be the war in Syria. Um, and uh, it's one that certainly amplified and developed my own political thinking about um, issues of humanitarian intervention, um, military intervention in the name of humanitarianism, uh, and very much solidified uh, my own opposition to U.S.-led uh, intervention in Syria in the name of uh, humanitarianism. Um, and uh, uh, nevertheless, even though I was opposed to a U.S.-led military intervention in Syria, and I'm actually uh, very happy that President Obama uh, decided against that, I think actually it was one of the best decisions of his administration. Um, I am very saddened and disappointed that that, that war uh, became as internationalized as it did, um, that the Syrian people never had a chance, uh, that, the, that, the, that the uprising in Syria, the democratic uprising in Syria, was manipulated and distorted and ruined into an international proxy war uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia and the US and Russia uh, and Turkey and, uh, uh, you know, many of those other actors. Um, and, um, you know, to the, to the great, great loss of the Syrian people and their beautiful country. Um, so that, that has been the most heartbreaking failure and also just the extent to which it amplified the brokenness of the international system. Mm -hmm. um, the manner in which the UN Security Council shields and defends, uh, you know, the five uh, superpowers uh, there shield and defend their client states, their cronies, you know, whether it's uh, the United States uh, backing Saudi Arabia and shielding Saudi Arabia from the war in Yemen, or much more significantly shielding Israel from any accountability or restraint um, in the same way Russia uh, blocked and prevented accountability and restraint uh, by Syria. Um, and, you know, seeing that up close, um, even when everyone was agreeing how horrible it was, but right. unable to to exercise a, a global diplomatic solution to put a stop to that mm. um, was, was very, very uh, depressing. You meant, I asked for three, but that's, that's a <laughs> depressing enough, Sarah Lee. Thanks. Um, we'll take the one. I, I'm curious though, you also your, your, um, the notion of justice and human rights. So what role does, do you think human rights should play in resolving the Syrian conflict or the Palestinian Israeli conflict. Does human is is human rights at the center of any solution in your mind, or is it actually we need to sort of hold our nose and, and have a political settlement on different terms um, mm -hmm. to resolve those conflicts? 
Uh, I mean, human rights is the standard um, by which you're going to measure uh, any diplomatic solution or military solution for that matter. Um, and, and ultimately, the standard is whether or not the agreement you reach um, or the system you put in place is one that will um, per, you know, respect the rights of everybody under the sovereign's control, um, uh, provide equality, provide justice, provide accountability. Um, but in order to get there, um, you need a political solution. Um, mm. You know, you need some kind of an agreement between parties to a conflict. Mm. Uh, and in 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 the case of Syria, of course, there are multiple parties to the conflict actively fighting on the ground. Mm. Um, and you know, I think at this point, the question is, you know, do the remaining parties to the conflict, let's say Hayat Tahrir al-Sham and Idlib. Um, what will happen if they're excluded from the political process? Can they be part of the political process when now they're not? Mm. Uh, you know, as long as they have foreign government supporting them, it yeah. can become drawn out. But at this point, I think the, 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 the international proxy war that's being fought in Syria yeah. is only prolonging the war. And where do you stand on accountability for human rights abuses, especially in, in, in these protracted conflicts? Is that, again, something that we should be pursuing at all costs or actually for the sake of peace and, and stability? And should we sort of, again, brush them under the carpet? Mm. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to say, yes, let's brush them under the carpet. You know, accountability like human rights is, is a very big word. And I think it encompasses many, many ideas within it. There are many different forms of accountability. Um, there's judicial accountability, um, which is for, you know, Western lawyers in particular, like myself, the, the gold standard. You know, you have a judge, you have lawyers, you, have, you put out the facts, you weigh it, it's according to the laws, the sentence is measured and meted out. It's all very orderly. Um, but that rarely uh, works out in situations of international conflict, particularly in cases of civil war. Um, and so there are other forms of accountability. Um, there is truth and justice mechanisms where you agree that the social harm of trying to imprison tens of thousands of accomplices, uh, tens of thousands of people who uh, played a role in even very vicious uh, human rights abuses in their mm. countries isn't feasible, uh, isn't practical, will actually destroy uh, the, the, the unity of the country in profound right. ways. And so you find other ways of having accountability. Okay. Uh, and those are very important. Um, you know, my, my own personal view uh, is that, and this is one of the challenges of being an international organization that's, that, that uh, can issue a report and make recommendations, but isn't actually responsible for implementation is that human rights organizations, including Human Rights Watch, are sometimes take purist positions uh, on justiciability and, and accountability, uh, demanding that gold standard in all cases and never being open to compromise. You know, that the notion that there might be a compromise solution that doesn't put people in jail, for example. Mm. Um, and maybe that's the right role for an international human rights organization that is a standard bearer Mm. Um, let the parties decide on another option, but our position is it has to be this. Um, I think that the more, and this is not just on accountability, but the more you try to be an organization that is also focused on implementation, um, the more you get into the policy world and, and, yeah. and the practical things you have to do for things to work, which are not often the gold standard. And and so, the big C, the, 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 the C word, I think, that you've been assiduously avoiding, compromise. Oh, compromise. No? You know, is it, is it I, I don't know if you would call it compromise. I'm, I'm not a good compromiser. Um, it's, um, it's rather effectiveness. It's rather, you know, understanding that you have priorities, uh, understanding that you have to prioritize. And I think right. the closest we came to doing that, and it was an internal struggle at Human Rights Watch for us to get this report issued, for example, where we had to really persuade people that this was the right answer, um, was with the case of ISIS detainees in Iraq. 
And so the perfect answer would have been, you know, uh, prosecute every single one of them, anyone who is involved in any serious human rights abuse, put them in jail, you know, the Iraqi laws, life sentence, you know, sorry, my computer's talking to me, that thinks I, my, my phone thinks I asked the question. And so the answer, the purest answer would be, you know, justice should be meted out, jail terms, life in jail. We're talking 20, 30, 40,000 people engaged in a war, yeah. Iraqis, young boys, 18, 25, you know, this. And so what we were able to argue is that the Iraqi government should prioritize prosecuting the worst offenders yeah. responsible for the worst abuses and for the rest, go justice, truth and accountability, go opportunity for victims to give their testimonies, give opportunity for victims to be reintegrated. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. And that was a novel approach yeah. that, that Human Rights Watch did take, but it yeah. was something that we had to really think through and develop an argument for and persuade the lawyers and persuade right. others at the organization to go in that direction. And, and we should note, I'm conscious of time, but uh, we should note, I mean, you, you, you research, you write your, your, the, the reports for Human Rights Watch, but then you actually do go off and attempt to engage both publicly, but also privately with country and, and non-state actors as well to convince them of the, the wisdom of your recommendations. Yes. It, it's not that you just put it out into the ether. You, you do do some very hard advocacy yeah. work one-on-one uh, -on -one as well. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, in my experience, uh, is that that opportunity for direct one-on-one -on -one advocacy with governments in the Middle East and North Africa, but I, I think actually many governments around the world, decreased with time. Uh, and again, that's partially because governments now, it wasn't a surprise factor. They knew who we were, they knew the kind of reports we issued, they knew what, you know, uh, it was already factored in, whether or not they had to meet with us. Um, but as well as more and more governments uh, came into war and came into conflict, they stopped giving us access, stopped mm. being willing to meet with us, um, shut us out of Yemen, shut us out of Israel, shut us out of Egypt, shut us out of Bahrain, uh, shut us out of Algeria. And so the geographic space that we had, the on the ground space that we have to have one-on-one -on -one discussions with government mm. officials, not just the ambassadors who will say anything uh, and can deliver nothing, um, but the actors on the ground has grown much more limited with time. And that's a real disappointment because it's actually was a learning experience to hear things from their perspective. But everything in the Middle East, particularly after the Arab uprisings of 2011, became an existential threat mm. uh, to uh, these governments. Mm. And, and, and back to the question you were asking me, you know, the other disappointment and realization was the extent to which the U.S. government continued to support and continues to support some of the worst actors in the region, the most abusive actors in the region. And, you know, and, and their calculation of, we don't need to talk to you, we don't need to meet with you. You know, Obama's already on our side supporting the war in Yemen, mm. um, you know, Egypt, Sisi is Trump's favorite dictator. Uh, Israel, we have, you know, uh, Pompeo standing on occupied ground, delivering a message to the RNC. Um, so that, you know, that, I think it's always been my assessment that the U.S. is not a good actor mm. in the Middle East. Uh, but that has that view, that perception based on my on the ground experience and observation yeah. has certainly solidified and hardened. And are you uh, overall then, given that experience, that, that life experience, are you, are you hopeful? Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about human rights in the Middle East, North Africa region? Um, you know, it's short term, long term. What's your horizon point? Um, I don't know about optimism. Optimism is a really hard thing to have in this day and age. It's hard to have in America right now. It's hard to have in, in American cities where yet another African-American was, mm. was shot 
you know, with seven bullets uh, as he was trying to enter his car with his children in there. Are we optimistic about police reform? You know, you asked me this today and I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm optimistic. Um, but what I am optimistic about, and it's not really optimism, it's, it's an observation. It's that for every human born, there is in us an innate desire for fairness and justice. Mm. And these are the natural things to teach our children. And it's a natural thing everybody wants. They want to be treated fairly. They want to be treated with respect. They want to be treated with dignity. They don't want to feel like a subject. And so no matter where or what, you're always going to have a next generation Mm. of people who make that demand known, Mm. who, who, who will push for what's true and what's right. It can't be snuffed out. You can snuff out the entire human race, which may well happen. um, But, you can't snuff out that human instinct. So speaking of that human instinct, Sarah Lee, an opportunity for you to talk about perhaps your next uh, venture, which by the time this airs, you will have officially launched. Uh, yes. Dawn, democracy yes. uh, in the Arab world now. Yes. Can you uh, spend uh, 30 seconds? What is it? Who founded it? What's it all about? How do we get involved? Sure. Uh, uh, Dawn uh, was founded by Jamal Khashoggi, a, a, a friend of mine and a uh, longtime colleague and collaborator over many years. Uh, probably the first person I met in the Saudi embassy uh, that when I visited uh, back in 2004 or five uh, in Washington, um, founded uh, by him as an organization to continue to promote and push for democracy and rights uh, in in the Arab world. Um, our goal, uh, our vision is that we believe that democracy and human rights are the only solution uh, for the region, the only solution that will have security and stability and dignity for the people of the region. Nothing else will work. There may be shortcuts, but they won't last because they go against those human instincts that I was mentioning. Mm. Um, and what we're uh, uh, seeking to do is to demonstrate uh, to the governments in the region that by silencing one exile, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, by brutally murdering him, they have not silenced uh, the demand and the call for rights and justice and freedom uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. And we hope to be a vehicle uh, for thousands of exile voices, uh, 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 people from the Arab world, people from the Middle East who struggled and have sacrificed uh, to build a better future for the region and have now been exiled from their countries. We want to harness their energy back to that mission, to focus on that mission. Um, We also want to focus very carefully uh, on the enablers, on on the complicit government officials who make the abuse and oppression possible. You know, we always hear about the CCs of this world uh, and, and and the MBSs of this world, but you never hear about the judges who enforce these these laws. You never hear about the prosecutors uh, who who carry out sham trials and sham investigations. You never hear about the prison wardens who deprive these uh, prisoners mm. of, of basic basic dignities uh, in their detention. Right, the, and so the we instruments want to shine of policy, the enablers. Close spotlight on yeah. um, these people. Um, while amplifying the voices of exiles and experts for a new vision for the region. And um, for those listening or viewing, the, um, the, the link, the website for Dawn will be in the, uh, the, the podcast description. Um, yes. So, um, DawnMina.org. DawnMina.org. Um, uh, lightning round, Sarah Lee. I'm conscious we've got a hard deadline. So lightning round, if I may, take a, a few more minutes of your time. Um, short, short, 25-word uh, uh, answers, if that. Does international law work? Uh, not usually, um, but we have to keep trying. Heroes, people that have come before you that you draw inspiration from in your human rights work? Oh, um, absolutely. Um so many, so many to remember, but you know, the heroes I think of are often the unnamed, unknown people who have taken personal risks with little personal gain. Um, the people who are marching in the streets of, of Cairo uh, uh, demanding uh, 
uh, change in their government. Um, the people who took bullets in Syria, 18-year-old, uh, 20-year-old uh, kids uh, wanting democracy and freedom for, for their country. Those are my heroes. Mm. Um, best book you've ever read on human rights or international law? Fiction, non-fiction, doesn't matter. You know, um, uh, I'm just not good with, uh, with titles, um, but the memoir uh, by Hisham Matar, uh, which I think won a Pulitzer Prize, um, about his father's disappearance in Libya uh, and the impact that had on him and his family, uh, was one of uh, the most poignant and beautiful and deeply moving books that I read that pertain to uh, our region and, and, yeah. and the struggle in our region. And uh, favorite international law slash human rights movie? Oh, gosh. And favorite, I don't uh, mean, you know, sitting there with popcorn and in, in a, having a laugh, but you know, oh, the most poignant or most special. So many, but one, I mean, I don't know if it's the most, um, but I'll say A. Uh, I think that one movie that, that really shocked me and, and, and opened my eyes to something I had no idea about. Well, there were a couple, certainly. Um, one was Waco, uh, Terms of Engagement, about the uh, uh, Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco's raid into the Waco compound in Texas. Yeah. Uh, against what they called a cult, a religious cult. Um, this unbelievable, uh, uh, brutal attack on peaceful uh, community. Uh, and even if it wasn't a peaceful community, a heavy-handed assault that led to multiple unnecessary deaths uh, and then defended and justified by government officials, including Chuck Schumer, who I remember played the bulldog, interrogating the victims uh, of Waco when they came to testify before Congress. It was a real eye-opening mm. account mm. Of, of government overreach uh, here, here in the United States. Looking, looking at history, your favorite international law moment in history? <coughs> Again. I, can't, I can't think of absolutes the way you say. Um, favorite, best, and so forth. But I, but what comes into mind an international moment that comes international law moment that comes to mind is when Palestine ratified the Rome Statute and joined the ICC. Um, it was something that we had been urging uh, the Palestinian officials, President Abbas, to do for such a long time. Um, they. There's, an, there's another book or, or paper to be written on why they took so long to do it, but they did. Um, but finally seeing them take that measure, finally mm. seeing them take that lever of accountability in their hands, um, I just remember, uh, you know, whooping with joy that, that, that they had taken that move. Yeah. Um, fill in the gap. International law is three words. International law is the best hope we have for uh, multilateral, peaceful, uh, justiciable solutions uh, for people around the world. Uh, another fill in the gap. There ought, to, there ought to be an international law about... Honking. Honking? Cars should not have their... Uh, we need to more about honking. Okay, <laughs> just being flippant. <laughs> uh, if you if you hit a horn, it should blast as loudly in your own car as it was outside. So you really think twice before you honk that horn. <laughs> <laughs> um, fantastic. And my final question, Sarah Lee. There's a lot of students of international law that uh, are going to be uh, viewing this. What advice would you give them if they want to pursue a career in? Um, international law in human rights? Um, I would say, you know, think beyond the law. Um, think about if, if you really are in the international domain and, 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 uh, and want to do something abroad, really get to know the place, um, get to know the people, learn the language, live there, be there, eat the food, drink the water, um, there is a level of experience and understanding that only comes when you're not in COVID. 
um, when you're on the ground and when you are in a place for chance encounters that will shape and determine the way you see everything. There's an education that can't be had in books. Mm. Um, so don't just think about the degrees and the classes and, and the treatises. Um, um, think about the people. Think about the human beings and, and building and developing real relationships uh, and, and understanding the perspective of people who you ostensibly want to help uh, or serve. Mm. Um, be there. Yeah. Sarah Lee Whitson, um, we are way out of time. Uh, I just want to wish you the best of luck with Dawn and congratulate you on an amazing tenure at Human Rights Watch. Thank you for, uh, for your time today. Thank you for your contributions to making the world a better place. Thank you for having me. and so lovely to see you after all these years. Yes, and thank you for that mentorship and that internship <laughs> way back when. Look at me now. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? <gasps> Better Place Talking International Law is produced and edited by Keith Hibbert, advised and supported by Neil Grant, and hosted by Jonathan Colebe. Music supplied by Ian Post. The Better Place team thank RMIT University for supporting this project, and we acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose unceded land we work. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders, past, present, and future.